should have all had a copy of sermon notes if you want them. If not, put your hands up and the stewards can bring some more around. One thing about studying Exodus is that the readings can get very long. Uh, this week we only have two chapters we're looking at. But even that will be quite long to read. Um, so what you're going to get is the edited highlights, as it were. So, we'll start at Exodus chapter 33, and it's on page 92 if you're using one of the church Bibles. So, Exodus 33, and starting at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now, take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the Tent of Meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. And then picking up again at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand till I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words which are on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me on there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you, 
or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. O Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's start by reminding ourselves of the background to today's story. Where have we been in Exodus so far? God has chosen the Israelites to be his own special people. Right back to the time of their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's made promises to them. And now he's remembered those promises. He's rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. He's revealed his own personal name to them. He set them free through the ten plagues and the Passover. He saved them from Pharaoh's army through the parting of the Red Sea. He's brought them safe across the desert, giving them water and manna and quails, just when they thought everything was lost. And he's brought them here to Mount Sinai. And at the mountain, he's appeared to them in thunder and fire and smoke. He's awed them with his majesty and holiness. And he's made a solemn covenant with them. A treaty, if you like. And he's given them his laws to live by. The Ten Commandments. And they've promised faithfully to obey everything he said. And he's met with them so intimately. The leaders of Israel have met God face to face. And he's given them plans for a tabernacle. A kind of portable temple they can take with them. To keep the intimacy of that meeting on the mountain. A place where God himself can live among them and be accessible to them. The sign of his presence right there with them. And then, despite all that, despite all the blessings he's poured out on them, what do they do? Last week, or two weeks ago, we heard the story. They got fed up waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain. So they made themselves an idol in the form of a golden calf. And they worshipped it. And they said, this is the God who brought us up out of Egypt. How big an insult could they make to God? To make something out of metal and worship it. 
and give it the credit for all the things God himself had done for them. For a start, that's the first two commandments broken. And all within just days of them having agreed faithfully to obey everything God says. And when Moses comes down from the mountain and finds them at it, he is furious. He smashes the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. He destroys their idol and civil war breaks out in the camp. Because this is a disaster. They'd experienced God in a way that no other people on earth had been given the opportunity to do. And yet they have utterly failed to be faithful to him. What on earth is going to happen to them now? And what happens to us when we have known the mercy of God shown to us in Jesus and yet have gone on to utterly fail him in some way? What hope is there for us? Have we let God down in some way? Have we caused hurt to someone else, either deliberately or accidentally? But there's no way now to set it right. No way to turn the clock back and undo what's happened, however much we might want to. This is just the way things are now. And so we come to today's reading. And the big question for the Israelites, now that they've failed God, what is going to happen to them? Have they lost everything? Because make no mistake, he is angry with them. The first six verses say it. I've made promises, so I will still give you the promised land, but I won't go with you. My angel will lead you instead. There will just not be the same intimacy there once was. And the people's reaction is to mourn. Because far above and beyond the hope of getting to the promised land, what they come to value was the knowledge of the presence of God with them. The closeness of that relationship. And now it all risks being lost. And surely this is something we've all experienced. Because none of us has lived a perfect life. Even since we came to know Jesus. We've all failed him in one way or another. Some in small ways. Others perhaps in huge ways. Can there still be hope for Christian sinners? When we see our own sin and feel that God is far away because of it, is there still hope for us? And the message of this passage is that yes, there is hope. Not because of any residual goodness that we might claim, but because of who God is. That he is the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness. Our hope, just as it was when we first came to know him, is in the love, mercy, and faithfulness of God. We may fail. We, we will fail. But he is the Lord, the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Actually, there is someone else involved here too. There's Moses, the one man who's untainted by their failure because he wasn't involved. The one who still meets with God face to face, the one who still has that intimacy. And what does he do? He prays for them. He doesn't gloss over their failing, but he pleads with God for reconciliation. He reminds them both that they are God's people for better or for worse. And perhaps when we feel distant from God, there is a role for that friend who can be with us. Not to pretend that we haven't messed up, but still to be there with us, to help us confront it, to pray for us and with us, to help us make our way back. Or perhaps you are that friend. Yes, you know your own mistakes. You know you're not perfect either. But here's someone who knows all too well that they've messed up, what hurt they've caused. Will you stand with them? Will you help them? Because in doing that, we're sharing in something that God himself is also doing. In Romans 8, we read that Jesus himself is standing at his father's right hand and interceding, praying for us. And what about? Well, that whole passage is about things that would separate us from God. If we feel that our sins, our failures are making a new barrier between us and God, Jesus himself is there working to restore us, to bring us back home again. And even more than that, because how do we pray when we've messed up? What words can we use when we know all our faults? Sometimes they just don't come. When all we can do is groan. Even then, that same passage in Romans 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. He intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. So take away from this the message that we aren't alone. We all fall flat on our faces sometimes. We all mess up. But hopefully we have friends who won't give up on us, who will stand with us and help us. And even more, we certainly have Jesus praying for us and the Holy Spirit praying with us, even when groans are all that we can manage. But above all, we have hope because of who God is. Yes, he is holy. His holiness burns like a fire that sin cannot enter. And yet he is the Lord who has compassion on his people, who makes a way for them to come close. And in this extraordinary scene with Moses on the mountain, when he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, and reveals his glory afresh, and proclaims his name and his character, his name, Yahweh, the Lord, the one who is and who will be, and his character, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, 
slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Yes, sin does not go unpunished, and it does have consequences, perhaps even to the third and fourth generation. But to those who repent, who turn away from sin and seek his mercy, his love extends to thousands and forgives all manner of wickedness and sin. God's very nature is to show mercy, to forgive, to restore, because otherwise we would have no hope. None of us can stand in his presence on our own merits because we're good people. We all have sinned. We all have fallen short of his glory. We all deserve his wrath. And yet he reaches out to us. He offers mercy and forgiveness. He restores. He rebuilds. And here is our hope. Because he invests all of himself in doing so. This isn't just peripheral to what he does or who he is. It's not a sideline or a hobby. It's what he gave himself totally for. It's what he suffered the cross for. Think about it. If Jesus was willing to accept the cross for you, for me, if he was willing to go through all that suffering, all that pain and anguish, is he going to turn his back on us now? Surely he has proved his faithfulness beyond any measure we could propose. So if today you're conscious of sin, if God seems far away because of it, if you wonder whether the intimacy you once knew could ever come back, remember this. God didn't hold himself back from the cross. He went through it all for you, already knowing all your failures. He accepted it all because he is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. What response can we have except to worship this amazing God who loves and accepts us still? So I finish with that same passage from Romans 8 that we've been dipping into. When he talks about things being against us, think of our own failings as much as any external opposition. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship 
or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.